Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scriptures with me this morning and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 14 will be in verses 15 through 31 here in one moment. We are those who are in need of complete vision correction. And we need a lens which gives us that correction, a lens which helps us see clearly, a lens that cannot be any lens, a lens not of our own making, a lens not even of our own choosing. We need a lens that is objective. We need objective truth in our lives, and God gives us objective truth in his word to give us a vital lens that is a lens that actually gives us life and why do we need complete vision correction so that we can see ourselves clearly so that we can see the world around us clearly but even more importantly so that we can see God and his glory clearly Is God's word that lens which your life depends upon that you need? Does it give you the complete vision correction that you require? Let's not pretend this morning we all need it. We all need it every day. And so let's go to it this morning. Would you stand with me as I read Exodus 14, verses 15 through 31? The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them, 
and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained." But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to proclaim your word with faithfulness, clarity, conviction, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever felt like your back is up against a wall? You're trapped, you're cornered, Seems as if there's no way out of the situation, no way to escape. We have this cliche, you're between a rock and a hard place. There's no good choice in that situation, perhaps. No obvious decision that you could make to cause the situation to resolve. There's some common... Responses when you're being squeezed. You could turn in on yourself. In despair, you could resort to depression. You could give up. You could be indifferent and clam up and as much as possible try to isolate yourself so as to alleviate the pain that you are in. 
try to remove as much of the hurt as possible. You end up seeking something to numb the pain. Another option, perhaps, when you're cornered is you get angry. You could let bitterness, resentment set in. You could get agitated and irritated. As the disturbance in your soul grows, the only, left, the only thing left for you to do is to fight your way out. You will make your own way. You will pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work it out on your own. It might be messy, but you're determined to get out by hook or by crook. We find Israel at this point in their lives backed into a corner. They're trapped with no apparent way out. And before we move past this reality, we must let it sink in for a moment. It was not an easy place to be. They were threatened from every side. They had the horde of the Egyptian army with all of its chariots pressing in on one side, and they had the impassable Red Sea on the other side. There was nowhere to turn. There was no route of escape. They were afraid. They lacked faith. They struggled with unbelief. And it could be so easy for us to pass over those dire circumstances and say to them, Come on, Israelites. Just get over it. Get your act together. Don't you know it's all going to turn out okay? Don't you know that God is good all the time? We might be tempted to chide them with these and other cliches. And we shake our heads at them. We look down upon them without realizing we are the Israelites. Their position was our position. Their fear was our fear. Their lack of faith and unbelief was our lack of faith and our unbelief. Their state of misery was our state of misery. The turmoil that they felt in their souls was the turmoil that we have known in our own souls. The despair that shook them to their core is the despair that can so easily close in around us. Do you see yourself in Israel? And that is either where you once were, or perhaps that's where you are right now. Often when faced with this reality, we say, just tell me what I need to do. Give me a how-to sermon, Pastor. A step-by-step guide. Lay it out for me in very practical ways, and I'll do it. So one commentator says we could draw moral lessons like be faithful in a tight fix or don't fear tough times, just be still and let God take care of you. There's nothing wrong with those per se, but is that the point of Exodus? Here we stand on the precipice, the climax of the whole book the section in the text that culminates with this exodus event of the people going through the Red Sea. Is Exodus given to us in this section here as a text to give us a little pep talk when we're going through trying circumstances? 
Does it teach us that God will win our battles for us? No, it teaches us something even better. So what does it teach us? What could be better than God winning our battles? It's to remind us that God has won the battle. This truth, the fact that God has won the battle, then changes how we live without a how-to sermon. It changes our perspective on life. So I want us to look this morning at three truths that spring from our text that teach us about who God is, about what He is doing, about how He has won the battle, and then how we should respond. Number one this morning, first truth. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. God's salvation is an act of new creation. God's salvation is an act of new creation. One of the questions I frequently ask myself when I read the Bible is, have I read this somewhere else in the Bible? Looking for key words, phrases, even ideas that might help shed light on what I'm reading. God is sovereign. And we proclaim that God is sovereign over the entire cosmos, over everything. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is also sovereign over His Word. And He has so intricately orchestrated all that happens in the course of history. He has so intricately woven His Word together to be this beautiful tapestry in order to reveal Himself and His glory to us. God has breathed out His Word with precision and with purpose. He did not throw it together haphazardly, but rather He communicates in such a way to reveal His greatness and His divine plan of redemption. And so when we read this prose version of the Exodus account, we'll get to the poem, Lord willing, next week. This is the prose version of walking through the Red Sea. Exodus, we see, is formed and molded by the creation account. Exodus is built upon the foundation of Genesis. And we see this expressed in how Moses reflects the creation account and how the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. Did you hear or see creation hints as we read through the text this morning? Let's pull out a few of these echoes, these hints. First, we see it in the angel of God who is going before Israel, who is associated closely with the pillar of cloud and fire. The angel of God usually appears as a theophany. A theophany is a manifestation or appearance of God. So we first saw the angel of the Lord, and I think the angel of God here and the angel of the Lord are synonymous, but we first saw the angel of the Lord at the burning bush. There was a theophany. It says there, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And so here now is the angel of God who is appearing in the pillar of cloud and fire. Again, both the burning bush and the pillars are theophanies, and so it makes sense that the angel of the Lord or the angel of God would be associated with each of these. But notice 
what the pillar does. The pillar was leading the Israelites, right? It was in front. It was leading them in the way that they were supposed to go. But now it does something interesting. It moves from being in front of them and it moves behind them. It moves to be their rear guard. The pillar is stationed now between the sons of Israel and the Egyptian army. What is the Lord doing? He is protecting His people, isn't He? And this cloud is doing what we see happen at the very beginning of creation. It's separating light and darkness. Did you read that there? There was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other. So I think there's a a distinction here. On one side, there's light. On the other side, there's darkness. Israel is on the side of light. Yahweh is the God of light, so he separates the light from the darkness, and he, in doing so, he shows who are the children of light and who are the children of darkness. Here is this dividing line we cannot miss. So God separates there the light from the darkness. Just as he did at the beginning of creation, he separated light from darkness. What else? Another echo, another hint, perhaps, of where we see the creation account here. It's found in verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. What is it that is being used of the Lord to drive back the sea? It's this wind, isn't it? And interesting, when you look at that word wind in the Hebrew, it's this word ruach. And ruach can mean either wind or it can mean spirit. And if we think about it in that sense, we hear this echo because what was there at the very beginning of creation? Well, it was God's spirit, his ruach, that was what? Hovering over the face of the waters. And so again, here we see this connection, this echo of what the Lord is doing. He's doing something, and we're getting this idea that we've heard some of these things before. We've heard that the Lord separated the light from darkness. We've heard that His Spirit or this wind is used in such a way over the waters to not let the waters prevail. And then what happens in verse 21? The waters were divided and dry land appeared. We read this in verses 16 and 21. Similarly, the water gathered together in one place in Genesis 1, 9, and 10. And what happened when the waters, waters gathered in one place? Dry land appeared. Here it is the same words, dry land, that they are going to be walking on. This was not just any dry land. It speaks of land that's been sucked, all the moisture has been sucked out of it. It's this dry, hard land that they're walking upon. No hint of water whatsoever. The Lord is connecting God's 
salvation of his people to his act of creation. The Lord makes the way through the sea. He divides the water and creates a path of dry ground for the Israelites to walk on. He establishes a wall of water on their right hand and on their left. Walls of water that serve to protect them. Where were the Israelites at this time as we think about them walking through as God's doing this new creation, bringing them through, dividing the waters as the children of light on this dry land? Where are they? They are in the valley of the shadow of death. The sea, which represented the watery abode of death, a watery grave, is the path that the Lord would lead them upon to save them. And through the waters, it's like Israel has died to death, and they emerge on the other side of the shore, reborn, resurrected by Yahweh. God redeemed his firstborn son, Israel, again from death. The crossing of the sea is so structured to be a redemptive reenactment of creation. The waters, which could have meant certain death, were instead used by God to bring forth new life to those in God's favor. Just like those who were in the ark in Noah's day who survived the waters of destruction to emerge on what? On dry land, blessed by the Lord. This is the picture that's depicted in baptism. Paul equates this to baptism. We read it this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2. It says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and then what? All passed through the sea, and all were what? baptized into Moses. Here is this baptism into Moses as those who followed him. He was to be their leader. He was the one who spoke the words of God to them. He would become their intercessor who would go before God on their behalf. He was the final, or he was the prophet of the people. But notice, Moses, what does he do? He points to a better prophet, Moses points to a better intercessor for the people. And so the baptism into Moses points us now to a better baptism, a baptism that happens in Christ. What is the picture of baptism? You go through the waters of death and judgment, and what happens? You rise to walk in newness of life as someone who has been resurrected from the dead. Romans 6, 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, what, into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Or listen to what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Isn't this what God does when he saves? He makes a new creation. The Spirit so works in people's hearts and lives. The Bible calls this regeneration. You are made new. That has to happen 
in order for you to be saved. God has to make you anew. The old has to pass away. Is there any old that you might be trying to hold on to in your own life? Any old that you might think, maybe I could just have a little bit of that old life. No, we don't want any of that old life because we are new creations in Christ Jesus. We've gone through the valley of the shadow of death. We've emerged now as those who are resurrected, united to Jesus Christ in his life. And so now we live for him. And isn't that, isn't that what the Israelites saw on the other side? They saw the line of demarcation between the living and the dead. You imagine what a, what a lesson to teach your children. You can't shield them from that. They have to know about it. Here, little son, little daughter, look. See the dead Egyptians on the shore. This is what happens to those who refuse and rebel against the Lord. A great warning of death, but a great celebration of life for those who receive God's favor. Why did Israel receive God's favor? Because he loved them because he loved them. It was not because of anything that they had done. It's because he said, these are my people and I will save them and I will rescue them and I will come to them and I will lead them and I will watch over them and bring them through death to new life. Number two, God's judgment is an act of decreation. God's judgment is an act of decreation or uncreation, even though that isn't a word. So that's why I use decreation. But God's judgment is an act of decreation. While the hope of salvation is held out before us, we also see that salvation does not come detached from God's judgment. God would harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they would follow the Israelites into the sea. As the horses and the chariots and the horsemen followed them into the sea, the Lord looked down from the pillar of cloud and fire. And what, what did he do? He threw them into a panic. And the wheels of their chariots became heavy. It could even be that the wheels of their chariots fell off. Something, perhaps they became clogged with mud or something like that, so they could not drive anymore. And what's interesting is there's some irony here because you remember when Pharaoh and the Egyptians saw that the Israelites were, were hemmed in, were pressed in by the sea, and they said, ah, we got them now. They're in confusion. They don't know what they're doing. They're wandering around aimlessly. Now's our chance. Let's go back and bring back our servants. And now the Lord looks down from the cloud and the pillar, a pillar of cloud and fire, and he throws his enemies into confusion. They're terrified. And 
the Egyptians come to understand what was happening. The Lord was fighting for Israel. It was the Lord saving his people. It was the Lord triumphing over his enemies, the Egyptians. And it's important for us to remember when the Lord did this. Do you see that here in verse 24? When did the Lord do this? When did the Lord save his people? What does it say? And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. It was that morning watch, the time between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. That morning watch, the time for the dawn, when light would flood the earth, this morning watch actually becomes the hallmark of when the Lord saves His people. So how does Scripture build upon this idea? Well, Psalm 46, 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when? When the morning dawns. Isaiah 17, 14. At evening time, behold terror. Before morning, what? They are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. So what is it saying there in Isaiah 17, 14? In the morning, before the morning, excuse me, they are no more. They will come to an end. And even the New Testament authors pick up on this theme. Do you remember the disciples? They were in the boat without Jesus. They were making their way across the sea. And it says this in Mark 6, 48. And Jesus saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night... There it is, that morning watch, the same watch between those times. In the fourth watch of the night, what happened? Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now is the time that I'm going to save you. The morning watch, I'm going to deliver you. That is when you know it's the Lord's doing. The Egyptians, however, did not know God's salvation. Rather, they knew His judgment. They were in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, in the middle of chaos, and Moses stretched out his hand over the sea again, and this time the waters returned to their normal chaos and course. The walls of water come crashing down upon the heads of the enemies of God. Those who had once tried to cast the sons of Israel, into the Nile River. Now the Lord cast them into the watery grave of the Red Sea. Think about that. Very beginning, Exodus 1, when they're trying to kill the Israelite sons by throwing them into the Nile River. And now... God judges his enemies by throwing them into the depths of the sea. God is a just and fair God. The punishment, the judgment fits the crime. You destroy my people this way. I will judge you in like kind. So let us not ever think that the Egyptians did not deserve this. 
or the Egyptians did not have this coming. The Lord's judgment is always just and true and right. The Egyptian army ends up submerged by the waters of chaos, much like the original state of the earth before God's life-yielding acts of creation, much like the earth during Noah's generation after God's deluge of judgment. Now, again, the waters of chaos close over Yahweh's enemy as they are surrounded by utter darkness. All this happened before the morning appeared. It all took place without a glimmer of light or sun for the Egyptians. And maybe there is a, a reason why this happened before the morning light. Pharaoh was supposed to be in the image of an Egyptian god called Ra. Ra was the god of the sun. And so as the Egyptians waited for their god, the sun god, to appear, the Lord wiped them out. Who is the true God? Who is the powerful God? Not Pharaoh. Not the God that the Egyptians worshipped. That God did not come to save them, to rescue them. Yahweh won. Yahweh reigns supreme. The Egyptians experienced a decreation. It was like when the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, then that is when you know it is God's judgment. It was their destruction, their demise, their death. Listen to what it says in First Peter, or sorry, I'm sorry, Second Peter, chapter three, verses five through seven, and then verse ten. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and what? And perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God's work of judgment and God's work of decreation will happen again, but this time it will not be with the deluge of water. This time it will be by fire when the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. And that is judgment we do not want anyone to experience or know. But unless you've turned to Christ, that is the judgment that you will know. So what are we to do between this new creation and decreation? Leads us to our third truth. God unravels creation to recreate his people. So they respond to him in faith. God unravels creation to recreate his people so they respond to him in faith. In the last two verses of the chapter, we receive the testimony that the Lord saved Israel that day. 
There was no doubt who had done this. It was the Lord. It was a supernatural, miraculous work of the Lord to save his people. And Israel saw two things. They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The Egyptians that Moses had just promised they would never see again. They never saw them alive again. They also saw the great power of the Lord, the mighty hand of God. Look at the hand that had prevailed. Here is the hand that is more powerful. You see that here in verse 30. The Lord saved, the Is- Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. But then in verse 31, Israel saw the great power of the Lord. And very literally, it's they saw the great hand of the Lord. His hand, the Lord's hand, prevailed over the hand of the Egyptians. His power was more powerful. He showed himself to be greater. And so we go back to the very beginning. So he got glory over the Egyptians and over the Pharaoh and all of his army and all of his chariots and all of his horsemen. So how did the people respond when they saw this? They went from fearing the Egyptians to fearing the Lord. They stood in awe of the salvation that the Lord had worked for them that day. Look at the battle that God had fought for them and won. Look at how he had saved them. From fearing the Egyptians to fearing the Lord, from unbelief to faith, God had unraveled creation to recreate his people so they would respond to him in faith. They believed in the Lord and in his service, servant Moses. And this is the pattern that should be evident in our life because this pattern is pointing to a better response that we believe in the Lord and in his servant Jesus Christ. And it's right there at the cross where we see decreation and creation meet. Because it's there that we see the Lord hanging upon the cross. The perfect Son of God who had never sinned. We see there Jesus taking upon himself the judgment and punishment that we deserved. And what happens while Jesus is on the cross? It seems like the whole world is going to be undone by this one great act of redemption. Listen to what this, this children's Bible says as it tries to depict Christ on the cross. Even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountains shook. Rocks split in two until it seemed the whole world would break. The creation itself would tear apart. The full force of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down on his own son instead of his people. And it was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children whose hearts were filled with sin. Then Jesus shouted with a loud voice, It is finished! And it was. He had done it. Jesus had rescued the whole world. 
Father, Jesus cried, I give you my life. And with a great sigh, he let himself die. Strange clouds and shadows filled the sky, purple, orange, black, like a bruise. There is the world coming undone, but why did Jesus do all of that? To make his people new. To create a new people for God. To create new creations in himself who look forward to a new creation in a new heavens and a new earth. And so then listen to what Jesus says to us in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. But what? He has passed, or that word passed could also be said, he has crossed over from what? From death to life. This is our God who's made a way through the midst of the sea. Just as Isaiah prophesied and said that he would. Isaiah 43, 16 through 19, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That was us, dear brother and sister. We were the desert. There was nothing in us. We were dead. And what happens out of that deadness? God brought forth life. God brought forth rivers. God brought forth vegetation out of that desert. God made that desert an oasis. Do you perceive the new thing God has done in your life? Do you need God to do a new thing in your life? Go to Christ and be made new. Go to Christ and repent of your sin. Go to Christ and put your faith and trust in Him. And you will cross over from death into life. Let's pray. Father, may we see that you have won the battle. And you've made a way for us through the sea to be saved, to be redeemed, to be made new. And we have that new life in no one else 
but in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. What a work You have done in us. As we think about the fact that You have won the battle, I pray that our response would be a true response of responding in faith, in You, fearing Your name, believing in the new Moses, Jesus Christ, who has brought us through that valley of the shadow of death and brought us to new life. And now with that new life, how it changes the way that we live. We cannot continue doing what we once did. We now want to live for you. Father, thank you for salvation. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we are united with Christ in a death like his, in a burial like his, and also in a resurrection like his. And thank you that Jesus Christ will never die again. And so we have no fear of death. Let us live our lives now with patience for that day when our beloved Savior will return. We shall see him and we will be made like him because we will see him as he truly is. We pray this all in his name. Amen.